From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Emerson Sykes, a staff attorney here at the ACLU and your host. DeAndre Arnold was suspended from high school. Clinton Stanley Jr. was barred from first grade. Chastity Jones was not allowed to start the job she was hired for. And Maya and Deanna Cook were threatened with expulsion, all because of their hair. Hair discrimination is a form of racial discrimination, but judges have been hesitant to say so, because unlike skin color, people can change their hairstyles. But should they have to? More and more advocates and officials are saying no. For example, the Crown Act, a law that protects people with natural hair and hairstyles from discrimination in schools and workplaces, has already passed in three states. On this episode, we'll hear from Maya and Deanna Cook, sisters who faced hair discrimination at their high school, and Rhea Tabako-Marr, director of the ACLU's Women's Rights Project, on what lawyers and activists can do to help. In 2017, Deanna and Maya Cook were sophomores at Mystic Valley Regional Charter School in Malden, Massachusetts. Over spring break, Deanna and her sister Maya got braids in their hair for the first time. Deanna remembers her first day back at school well. A lot of kids had changed their hairstyle that particular time after break. There was a lot of kids who had changed their hair, like dyed it, and some boys who had like shaved their hair differently. So it wasn't like a big deal to like the students that me and Maya had gotten our hair changed because a lot of people for some reason had also done that. So we, when we wore our hair in our braids, we got a lot of compliments from students. But the second day that we were in school is when we got in trouble. I was going to my history class. Everything was normal. I sat down. We were doing work. And in the middle of my work, my teacher called me up to her desk to say, Deanna, your hair looks a little longer than normal. And I just said, okay, like, yeah. And she said, okay, well, I'm going to have to send you down to the nurse's office to get a uniform infraction. And this was the start of it all. This is where I started to feel like something was wrong because, you know, I was humiliated in front of my whole class. And I went down to the nurse's office and she told me that I had a week to take out my hair because it goes against the uniform policy. Me and Deanna have lockers next to each other. So in between classes, after she finished her history class, she let me know what happened. And I was like, oh, my goodness, because I have history class with the same teacher. I hope it doesn't happen to me. And I went to my history class. And before I could even sit down and, like, get myself set up, my teacher called me up to her desk and let me know that she was sending me down for an infraction. And I looked on the paper, and she had already filled it out at an infraction for my braids. So I went down to the nurse. It was the same thing. She asked me if I had extensions in. I said yes. And she said I had to take them out by Monday. The school's hair policy at the time was no extensions, no highlights, no hair two inches in thickness or height, no shaved lines, no lineups, and you cannot be bald. After me and Maya got in trouble, they started calling down students from their classes and asking them if their hair was real or not. And this went on for about two days. They called kids down and told them, you know, think really hard before you answer. Tell me if your hair is real or not, if it's extensions. They would get punished and told to take them out. And if it wasn't, you know, kids would lie and they really couldn't tell the difference. But me and Maya chose not to lie. The only students who were pulled out of class were students of color. Despite what they were facing, the sisters stood firm and decided to keep their braids in. 
They fought the school's policy and their punishment continued. My sister and I felt that we did not need to take our braids out because we felt we were clearly being discriminated against. Every day they would hand deliver us detention notices. So since we did not take our braids out, we would get an infraction every day. And that meant detention. We both racked up, I think it was 40 plus hours of detention. Deanna was not allowed to be on the track team anymore. I was not allowed to go to prom. And we were not allowed to go to any school events or activities like basketball games, sports events. And then as soon as the clock at the end of the day, as soon as it was 3.15, we had to be off school property. We couldn't just be there, you know, for like extra help or anything like that. We had to be off property or we would get suspended on the spot. Going to school after our hair became a big deal to them was very hard. Every single day, the pressure kind of built up, especially as more and more people knew about it. I felt very in the spotlight and not in a good way. I felt like there was something wrong with my body and that what they were upset about was my presence. Deanna and Maya's story went viral after they appeared on the local news. However, their experience is far from unique. The prevalence of hair discrimination in our schools and workplaces is all the more reason that legal protection is necessary. I spoke with Ria Tabako-Mar, an ACLU colleague of mine, to break down the legal argument against hair discrimination. So someone listening to Maya and Deanna's story might say, you know, a private school or a workplace has every right to set a dress code. What's the big deal? So can you explain to us why is this such a big deal? Well, there are two kinds of dress codes we see at play here. The first is rules that expressly ban natural black hairstyles, styles like locks or afros. And the second is a policy that's facially neutral, but that it's applied in an unfair way to punish people who wear natural black hair. And that's exactly what happened to Maya and Deanna. So in their case, the school had a policy that banned hair extensions. Maya and Deanna sent home from school for wearing extensions in their box braids. Whereas if you flip through pictures of the yearbook, you'll see white students wearing hair extensions in other styles who are allowed to go unpunished. And that's a form of race discrimination. But as I understand it, judges have been hesitant to find that hair discrimination is a form of racial discrimination. Why have they had so much trouble wrapping their heads around that concept? Well, that's a great question, Emerson, because if you ask most folks on the street whether discrimination against black hair is a form of discrimination against black people, I think the answer you would hear is yes. But we've seen courts tie themselves up in knots to avoid that conclusion, most prominently in the case of Chastity Jones. So Chastity Jones had applied for a customer service position at a call center. She was selected for the position, and before she was allowed to complete her new hire paperwork, the hiring manager asked if she planned to continue to wear her hair in locks, or what some people call dreadlocks. And the reason was that the company had a policy that prohibited employees from wearing locks based on the theory that locks tend to get messy, (laughs) even though Chastity Jones's hair was, in fact, not messy, a fact that the hiring manager recognized in explaining the policy to Ms. Jones. And when she refused to cut her hair, she was had the job offer rescinded. That case made it all the way up to the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. And what you see the court do in that opinion is go through a number of sort of mental gymnastics to avoid the conclusion that chastity was a victim of race discrimination. And the first reason the court says is that race is an immutable characteristic, but hairstyles, of course, can be changed. And so the court says Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, which is our most preeminent federal civil rights law that prohibits employment discrimination, only protects characteristics that are immutable. 
Now, there are a couple things wrong with that. The first is Title VII, in fact, already prohibits religious discrimination. Religion, of course, is something that can be changed. But we realize it's something that's so core to who we are, so central, that we shouldn't have to change it simply to do our job. The other thing the court overlooked is that while hairstyles can be changed, hair texture, of course, is not immutable. And so the effect of a policy that bans black people from wearing their hair in a natural style, of course, is to require them to alter the texture Hmm. of their hair and the way that it grows out of their head simply to come to work. It's fascinating. And as you said, it made it all the way up to the 11th Circuit. And then the Supreme Court was asked to hear the case and they declined. Do you have any sense of why the Supreme Court declined to weigh in on Chastity Jones's case? You know, there are a number of reasons the Supreme Court doesn't take cases, and one could be simply that there really hadn't been a large number of cases raising this issue, and that could be one reason the court didn't take it on. And so what you're left with is a world in which the most current leading case in this question is the case of Chastity Jones, because the Supreme Court let it go unchallenged. And so that then stands as the law of the land, something that's very discouraging to other people who are experiencing hair discrimination and may wrongly think they have no recourse. It actually discourages other cases from making their way back up to the pipeline, getting back to the Supreme Court, giving the court ultimately what I hope will be a chance to correct the 11th Circuit's ruling. Given that the courts have been hesitant to weigh in, I know that advocates and activists of all stripes have focused on local legislatures, and in particular, the Crown Act, which seeks to prohibit hair discrimination on the local and state level. Do you think that the fact that the Crown Act has been adopted in three states is a positive movement? I think it's fantastic. And when you look at the history of the Crown Act, the first move we saw was actually the New York City Commission on Human Rights issuing its landmark guidance, recognizing for the first time that hair discrimination is a form of race discrimination. And what was so fantastic about that guidance is that it didn't not only prohibited hair discrimination, but it explained that hair discrimination is illegal because it's a form of race discrimination, something that, as I said earlier, really, I think, is intuitive for most people when you think even the word dreadlocks, Mm. right, reflects the attitudes of slave traders who viewed African hair texture as dreadful. So it's really impossible to separate natural black hairstyles from the history of anti-black racism in the country. What we've seen with the Crown Act is an effort to take that guidance and to make express at the state level that hair discrimination is a form of race discrimination. I don't think that's a substitute for courts recognizing that hair discrimination is already illegal, right? We shouldn't have to pass new laws. When you think about when you walk into a public store, when you apply for a job, when you show up at school, and in all of those contexts, hair discrimination is already illegal. This is a cause that's very close to your heart. Your passion is obvious. And as I mentioned, you're now newly the director of the ACLU's Women's Rights Project, but you've also worked on racial justice with the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. You've also worked on LGBT rights here at the ACLU. And it seems like you have a very robust understanding of how intersectionality works in terms of discrimination. I'm curious if you can talk about how you see your work around hair discrimination in the context of all these other issues that you've also been working on. Sure. Well, hair discrimination is something that's near and dear to my heart. I wear my hair in locks myself, and I've long struggled with the perception that natural hair is not professional or that it's not appropriate in professional settings. One of my most vivid memories from law school is of being a 1L and being ready for my very first job interview. I was wearing my interview suit, and I say my interview suit because I only (laughs) owned one suit at the time. It was navy blue, and I just thought it was awfully professional. (laughs) I looked a little bit like a flight attendant. And I showed up at school, you know, ready to go on my interview, and one of my classmates said, nice suit. But you'll never look really professional with your hair in dreadlocks. Wow. And at that moment, I just 
felt that she had voiced something that everyone else must be thinking and was afraid to say to my face. But I just felt certain they were all thinking it, that I was never really going to look like a lawyer wearing my hair the way that it grows out of my head. And what does that mean about what it means to look like a lawyer? Who looks like a lawyer? Mm. What is their idea of what it means to be professional? And so in my own work, I think I've long struggled against that question of what does it mean to be a woman of color with natural hair in spaces where I'm often told that I look young or assumed to be someone other than, you know, the attorney litigating a case. And right now you're working on it on behalf of the Women's Rights Project, but it's not purely just a women's issue, right? Obviously, there's racial implications, there's gender implications, there's a lot of youth involved. Why should this be a priority for the Women's Rights Project? I think for Black women, the stereotype that natural hair is inherently unkempt or unprofessional has just fallen disproportionately hard because, of course, that has meant for all too long for Black women to subject themselves to chemical straighteners or to other forms of treatments that are expensive. They're painful. They're time-consuming. We spend literally hours on our hair every week, untold amounts of money in order to look the part and simply to go to work. And for Black men for many years, you know, there was an option simply to wear hair short. And what we've seen more recently with the examples of DeAndre Arnold, of course, is that more and more men are also choosing to wear longer hair and natural styles, which I think is wonderful. But I think that, too, is relatively new when you look at the history of who has been forced to alter the texture of their hair simply to come to work. And that has largely been Black women. As you mentioned, hair discrimination is not new, and certainly folks within the Black community, we've known about hair discrimination for a long time. It's as old as racism is. But it does feel like the national conversation is changing. You talked about viral videos and the impact that those have had in terms of making non-Black people understand exactly how these things are experienced. How do you navigate this historical legacy, this weight that we have in our history, with trying to approach these real-life issues that people are facing today? I do think that the history of hair discrimination is as old as anti-Black racism in this country. It's as old as chattel slavery. As I said earlier, even the very language that we use carries the weight of that history, and that's why many people today choose to use the term locks and not dreadlocks, Mm. because we're reclaiming the term and we're freeing ourselves from the history and from that trauma. What feels different today is a growing celebration of natural hair. We see it in popular culture. We saw it with Miss Teen USA and Miss USA, both Black women winning the crown this year, wearing their hair in natural styles. Truly an amazing moment when you think about, you know, young Black children today seeing those literal beauty queens wearing their hair the way that it grew out of their head, not having to alter who they are in order to be crowned with those titles. It's really an amazing thing, and it would have been unthinkable even if when I think back to when I was a child. And Hair Love, we have to give a shout out to the Oscar-winning short that covers exactly this issue of a of a Black dad dealing with his child's natural hair. Hair Love is a wonderful children's book and now a short as well. And I'm so grateful to the folks who put that book together. I have to say that I look forward to the time when we get to a day when we can have children's stories about Black children with natural Black hair, where that's not the point of the story, where we can feature children of all kinds and with all kinds of families and all kinds of hair, just going about their lives and doing the things that children do, chasing away monsters and dressing up like princesses. Well, so we started out by talking about these court cases, and now we're talking about children's books and the history of anti-Black racism in our country. And I think it sort of illustrates the fact that the courts were trying to push the courts to understand that this is actually a legal claim that can be remedied by the court. 
But there's a limit to what the law can do, right? This is rooted in, as you said, anti-Black racism, but also Eurocentric beauty standards that are pervasive in our society. So even if we get the courts to recognize clearly that hair discrimination is racial discrimination, it seems as though we'll still have a lot of work to do in the society at large. How do you think about the limits of what we can do in the legal field in something so deeply ingrained? I think that legal change and lived equality on the ground actually go hand in hand. I think part of how we will see the legal change is, in fact, by actually living out our truth on the ground, by making natural hair more beautiful and more acceptable. We will help judges to understand why wearing your hair in a natural style is, in fact, part of who we are. It's part of our racial identity. And so it's actually going to be that change in the popular culture that will get us to the legal change we need. Bria, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Emerson. It's important that we also recognize the more insidious harm done through hair discrimination. Outside of being punished and barred from school activities, Deanna and Maya faced emotional and mental harm that they still deal with today. For me personally, the emotional impact of this whole situation is something I'll never forget. If I'm being honest, I think about it every day and how I never would have thought I'd be discriminated against so hard for just being myself, it's something like you learn about in history books or you see on TV, and then when it happens to you, it's something you'll never forget. Yeah, it doesn't feel like I'm completely out of it because the emotion is still there with me. When I think about what they did to us and how hard they pushed back on us, it really hurts to my core and to my soul to know that they really were passionate about making sure that we felt small and that we felt like we weren't wanted in our own school community. The sisters fought their school's policy, and with the help of the ACLU of Massachusetts and a group of other organizations, they were able to stop the school from punishing them for their hair. When I was going through this experience, I told myself a lot, your hair is okay, you are okay. And to not let people who don't know me, who aren't in my body, who don't have my hair, to tell me how to do it, how to maintain it, and tell me that it's wrong, because they don't know that. And people who want to tell you about an experience that they're not going through, that they're putting you through, it's a choice for you to listen to them. You can fight it. You just need to look for support because everything's a lot easier when you have support of peers, family, anybody. If they can't find any support, me and my sister are always here to support them. You know, they're fighting for something that's right, then they'll get support. And that's most important. If you're experiencing hair discrimination, we're here to support you. Thanks so much to Deanna and Maya for sharing their story with us. And thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We really appreciate the feedback. Till next week, peace. Peace.